The following program was made possible in part by a major grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, exploring the human endeavor. We couldn't tell anyone, the neighbors, anyone. My grandfather said, when the time come, I'm going to call home and I'm going to give you a coat, and you would know what that means. This is Thuy Dinh. She was 13 years old when the city of Saigon fell to North Vietnamese forces in a surprise attack April 30, 1975. Ten days before, Thuy's family got that call from her grandfather. Each person get two pounds. That's it. You cannot leave with more luggage than that. We were shuttered to this compound that's part of the U.S. Army. And the next day, we, we landed in a, the Philippines' clock air base. And it was in Guam when we found out that South Vietnam had fallen. From April 20th to May 27, we moved through three different places before we landed in Virginia, an entirely different culture. I've never traveled outside of Vietnam before that. And then, you know, within that one month, so many things changed. I mean, I, I lost a country. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, leaving the Vietnam War. By 1973, the U.S. had been involved in Vietnam for more than two decades. President Richard Nixon was ramping up bomb raids, but the U.S. still wasn't winning. In January, Nixon finally signed the Paris Peace Accords, a peace treaty to end U.S. involvement. But the war between the North and South Vietnamese wasn't over. So a new question emerged. After the Paris Peace Accords, what would happen to Vietnam? The Paris Accords allowed over 100,000 North Vietnamese soldiers to remain south of the 17th parallel at the signing of the peace. What does that mean? That means that there were over 100,000 North Vietnamese with their daggers pointed at Saigon, and there was nothing short of resuming the war that the South Vietnamese could do to get them out. This is Mark Silverstone. He's a Vietnam War expert and the assistant director for presidential studies at the University of Virginia's Miller Center of Public Affairs. He spent years working with the secret White House tapes of Presidents John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, and Richard M. Nixon. The Nixon administration wanted to leave the war with its honor intact, with its credibility intact, with a sense that the United States was still a powerful force for good and leader of those free nations. And as much as the administration tried to suggest that the South Vietnamese would be able to stand after the Americans left, most people recognized that that just wasn't the case. The South Vietnamese were essentially signing their own death warrant. He says President Nixon and Henry Kissinger had no illusions about what the accord meant for Vietnam. So there is this conversation in early August of 1972. August 1972. This is months before the peace accord and years before the fall of Saigon. Kissinger says to Nixon, Mr. President, 
everything is coming together. You will be able to get out. You will have achieved your goals. And then by 1974 or so, when South Vietnam falls, people won't care. Do we have that tape? Yeah, we have that tape. After a year, Mr. President, Vietnam will be a backwater. If we settle it, say, this October, by January 74, no one will give a damn. No one will give a damn. Were they sorrowful? There is a sense of resignation, but it was essential for Nixon and Kissinger to get the United States out. South Vietnam had become a distraction. The Cold War confrontation with the Soviets, the emerging recognition of the People's Republic of China. This is what mattered to the Nixon administration, plaguing the bigger game in the Cold War. And Vietnam really needed to be taken off the table. Although U.S. combat missions had ended with the Paris Peace Accords, some American personnel remained stationed in Saigon. I played tennis and had no fear for my well-being. Literally four weeks before I had to be evacuated from Saigon. This is retired Admiral Peter Bondi. He was stationed in Saigon. I was going for a one-year tour duty. I was supposed to be there for a year. Do you think even the higher-ups in America fully thought you'd get your year? And I'll tell you one person who did think that was the ambassador to Vietnam from the United States, Graham Martin. Ambassador Graham Martin, who refused to believe that Saigon really was going to fall. This is Mark Silverstone again. He was being told that in no uncertain terms by his aides in Saigon, but he himself had lost a son in the fighting, his only son, and he refused to give in to the notion, the defeatist notion, that all was lost. Saigon fell April 30th, 1975. What had been happening leading up to the overrunning of Saigon by the North? A series of developments not the least of which was Watergate. And then fast forwarding to Nixon's resignation in August of 1974. And then Congress deciding to continue to winnow down the funding to uh, South Vietnam. These combined with the poor showing of the South Vietnamese army led the North to mount larger operations probing, would the United States come back in? if South Vietnam's viability was really threatened. Did we? No. The war was approaching Saigon. I did not know that through our sources of information, but I knew that because you could begin to hear the guns in the distance. No way. Yes. The flow of information was awful. <laughs> our principal source of information until the last month was Armed Forces Radio. And I'd hear things about that were going on in South Vietnam. I had no idea they were going on. You heard the guns in the distance and you knew trouble was coming. The North Vietnamese were overrunning province after province from the north to the south. It just moved like, like lightning moves on a storm at night. They just kept rolling up one city after another. The South Vietnamese were disillusioned. They never dreamed that this would happen. 
they and the civilians that were leaving the city at the same time jammed the highway, complete gridlock. I mean, they were like shooting ducks. The North Vietnamese, for the very first time probably, said to themselves, my gosh, we've got a chance on taking Saigon. So as the North was closing in on Saigon and only days remained before Saigon itself fell, was the Pentagon, was the White House, were others saying, get those people out of there? Only at the very end did the White House recognize and give the signal that the final evacuation had to take place. No one could have imagined that the fifth largest army in the world would disintegrate as quickly as it did. These soldiers were shedding their uniforms, dropping their boots, trying to blend in with the tens and really hundreds of thousands of South Vietnamese, trying to get to Saigon to figure out a way how to get out of the country, whether by air or by sea. So the people of South Vietnam were desperate to get out of there. But how? Huge lines formed at the American embassy. Many were hoping, pleading for the Americans to help them escape. The embassy was so overwhelmed by the people that they set up a new office out by the airport. There was an airplane that came in every 30 minutes, and we loaded, oh, I guess 100 or 150 Vietnamese on that plane. And we did that during the daylight, each day, seven days a week. Lu Nguyen, a 10-year-old girl, was one of the thousands rushing to get out. In 2015, she was interviewed as part of an oral history project by Virginia Tech's Master's in Planning program. Her father had arranged for his wife and eight children to fly out on April 29th. But um, my dad drove off the side of you know some rice paddies, and we saw about 20 helicopters that were there. So he pulled over. He thought that that's where we were supposed to meet. And um, when he come to each of the pilot of each of those helicopters and said the password, um, they did not know what he was talking about. They spent hours searching for the right one, and they missed it. But that didn't stop them. My younger brother, he was handicapped, so it was kind of tough for us to kind of move around. We really couldn't move around very quickly. We were scrambling to figure out ways to get out of Vietnam. There was a naval base nearby, and they figured it was a good bet for transportation out. It took many hours and a dangerous effort to get their car through the gates closing in on them, but Lou and her family made it through. Inside the gates, they gathered next to a flagpole for the night. And it was nice, air breezy. It was like, ah, great, perfect spot. Um, we had instant noodles for dinner that night, and then we went to sleep. And then by midnight, the naval base got bombed. And we were actually went from bomb shelter to bomb shelter in that naval base that whole night. The naval base was evacuated, and the family was on their own again. The next morning, they wound up with three other families on a small fishing boat that nearly sank passing ships were all too full to save them. Finally, a tugboat took them to a small city south of Saigon. By the time that we got to that closest city, that's already the 30th. By then, Saigon had already taken over because we got there until early afternoon. So Saigon had already been taken over um, at 10. Liu and her family had nearly died twice in less than 36 hours, and they hadn't even left Vietnam yet. We were tired, exhausted, no food. And so my mother decided to have a vote, very democratic, right? She said, let's vote. Um, We've been on the road now for 36 hours. Who wants to go home and who wanted to stay? My dad said, I understand that communist is bad, 
but they're probably just going to take me to go to some concentration camp or they kill me, and that's okay. You know, but I don't want to see the kids have to suffer. He voted to go home. And my mother by herself decided that, no, we're going to be beggars in America, but we're going. We're not going back. We're not going to live with the communists. Her family negotiated their way onto a ship. Lee remembers seeing flares go up in the city, along with the North Vietnamese flag. The takeover was official. The ship took off. There was supposed to be some steel barrier out in the Pacific Ocean, and if we go through it, they said that most likely the ship is going to blow up. And either you crash and we all die, or you crash into it, and we're able to break that steel barrier, and then we'll be able to be free. So the captain decided that they're just going to go right through it. And so everybody was so scared, praying. All of a sudden, we heard this loud, loud, loud noise, like boom. And then just dead silent. And then everybody just clapped. Oh my God, we made it through that barrier. So that's how we got out. That's how we got out in the Pacific Ocean. But their voyage was far from over. From that boat, they moved to a barge. Her mother fell into the water but was later rescued. Later, her brother passed out, likely from dehydration and seasickness. Then my mother was very driven now that we have to get into a ship to get him help. So there was a, an aircraft carrier came through. I forgot which one it was. Out in the middle of the sea, the only way to get on this aircraft carrier was by climbing a rope ladder. After many hours, they all made it on. But Lou's father couldn't climb the hanging ladder with her brother and all their belongings. He'd have to leave something behind. They'd been traveling with gold, so he grabbed that bag and left the rest. Um, when we reunited, my mother finally settled down and finally, okay, count all the bags. Where's the gold bag? My dad said, you know, it's that one. She said, that's not the gold bag. And she was right, it wasn't the bag of gold. That had been left back on the barge. What was inside this bag? cans of condensed milk. That bag that contained the condensed milk actually was what saved us because on the aircraft carrier, there was enough food for everybody. I mean, I don't know, they must have had like thousands of people on there. Each day they gave us a plate of rice. That's not enough for 10 of us. Lou's mother also brought a carton of cigarettes with her and she'd barter with the American soldiers, one pack for a bag of instant noodles. And so that's what got us through the five days on the aircraft carrier. The carrier finally landed safely in the Philippines, where many refugees stayed. But Lou's family was determined to push on to the United States, where they'd ultimately settle in northern Virginia outside Washington, D.C. Sometimes looking back, I just thought, gosh, why? Um, we were so lucky that we survived that versus the other people around us. And it was just... Amazing how we survived that. Lou's story is harrowing, but not uncommon. Thousands of Vietnamese people on boats floated out to sea, sometimes never finding a port or the fuel they needed or another ship to take them to safety. Americans, too, were scrambling to get out of Saigon. Pete Bondi remembers wondering how he would escape. No one said, gee, there's talk about us leaving or anything. Our job was to get the, the South Vietnamese out. Needless to say, Sarah, at one point, when you do that enough, you begin to say to yourself, ye gads, am I going to be one of those people on a plane? By the morning of April 30th, the airport and surrounding roads became so dangerous 
that Pete couldn't even make it to a plane to escape. So a plan was developed to run helicopters in and out, dropping people off on ships. Exactly. And so I I went in a helicopter with probably several other American civilians, but I was the only military, and then the rest were South Vietnamese. Pete Bondi was one of the last American servicemen to leave Vietnam. And I did not even know where we were going. I just knew we were leaving Saigon. There were more than 80 helicopters shuttling people out to the carriers. Helicopters, transports, even fighter bombers in a nameless whirling merry-go-round over the city. Although it seemed much longer, it took only two or three minutes to load the helicopters, and then it was farewell to Vietnam. But because there wasn't room to store their helicopters, the Vietnamese were forced to ditch their aircraft at sea. We had them stacked up there, you know, four or five at a time, waiting to land, so we would strip anything off that was worth saving and push it over the side. Captain Paul Jacobs was helping guide helicopters, like the one Pete Bondi was on, to his aircraft carrier, the USS Kirk. The one that was really dangerous was the big CH-47. The CH-47 was too big to land on board. Right. If he, he, if he tried to land on Kirk's flight deck, he would have impacted the ship and killed a lot of people. How frightened did they seem to be? Oh, they were scared to death. If they hadn't found us, they would have... It, if they had to crash at sea, they would have probably lost majority of the people. So he came out. Here was a giant helicopter hovering over you. What did you all do? I said, hey, get under there and see if we can catch them when they come out. What were they saying to you? There's no communication because the noise is so bad. So we, we assumed they were going to jump. We all knew that. But we never expected the first one to be a baby, one-year-old baby. The South Vietnamese pilot's wife dropped her one-year-old baby out of the helicopter, hoping the sailors below would catch him. They did. We caught them all. I think we, the only cast we had was somebody who had a sprained ankle. The guys on deck caught at least 15 people dropping 20 to 30 feet from that helicopter. We took 17 helicopters and about 140 people. Captain Paul Jacobs was then ordered back to Vietnam just after the fall of Saigon to rescue the Vietnamese Navy from certain death. He and his crew went on to save thousands of people by carrying them on board and guiding or towing their boats to the Philippines. And we went back to see what we could do. If I sent them back, they would all have been dead. They'd all killed them all. It was the most horrible situation I've ever seen in my lifetime. That was the largest humanitarian effort ever conducted by the United States Navy. Saigon, April the 30th, 8 o'clock. The last American helicopter prepares to lift off the last of the evacuees. Scores of people still crowded onto the embassy roof in the vain hope of rescue. Do you think the last ones have gone? I think they're all gone. Yeah. I think these people up here are committing suicide staying up here, but what can you do? The images of those last helicopters leaving Saigon with Americans and South Vietnamese aboard was a sad moment. Mark Silverstein again. This is a really sad chapter uh, in American history, regardless of how one feels about the propriety of the war. 
the United States had failed in its effort to support a non-communist alternative in South Vietnam. It was not a failure on the part of those Americans who fought there. It was a policy failure. It was a failure of leadership. It was a failure of assessing global conditions. It was a failure of understanding the nature of communism and nationalism in Southeast Asia. It was a failure of understanding the limits of American power. And as a result of those failures, millions of people lost their lives. We had a different understanding of leadership, of truth. We could never look on politicians again and believe what they were telling us. Vietnam changed so much of the fabric of Americans' lives. I think we're still trying to come to grips with the impact of the American adventure in Vietnam. While Americans began to deal with the aftermath of the war at home, the South Vietnamese began to deal with their new reality. My uncle got the news from the radio saying that, you know, the South has surrendered. That's Phu Nguyen. He was 10 years old the morning Saigon fell. And I remember my aunt sitting right next to us and said, well, you know, the communists now won, but uh, at least they're Vietnamese, so I don't think they would be that bad. That's what she said. As the North Vietnamese tanks rolled in, 10-year-old Phu took advice from neighbors. He ran outside smiling and handed out noodles to show his support for the North Vietnamese soldiers. He was afraid they'd shoot him otherwise. It wasn't long after when some relatives from the north came to visit. Because they heard the news that the American and the southern Vietnamese were so brutal to us. So that's why they rushed over and trying to rescue us. And they brought food? Yes. And I remember one of my relatives, she had uh, rice in her bag. And when she saw our house, she threw it away. She was so, you know, ashamed, uh, feeling like she was being cheated because she saw how we lived. They thought they were, we were poor. We were dirt poor. That's what they thought. So why had they thought that you were being mistreated by the South Vietnamese and the U.S.? All these propaganda from uh, North Vietnam, there was no outside media coming in. So they described our lives, a lot of hardship, mistreatment. Everything they got was one-sided. For the next four years, Phu and his family stayed in Saigon under communist rule. And his new life? It changed dramatically. Loudspeakers were set up across the city, and mass early morning exercises were enforced by law, as were short haircuts for boys like Fu. Books were burned, and even the way math was taught took on a new format. It has a problem like in the morning you kill five Americans, you know, and then in the afternoon you kill four more. So how many you kill in a day? That's your math problem. That's nine. Uh, and I, I remember the books were like that. They're so anti-American. But Fu's family resisted the onslaught of media depicting Americans and South Vietnam as evil. Fu's mother taught him not to give in, but to pretend, to put on a happy face and follow the rules. Their new leader, Ho Chi Minh, became Uncle Ho. And we were forced to write essay that we love Uncle Ho and we listened to the rules that he taught us. And we would kiss, pardon my language, but kiss his ass, you know, all the time. Just try to pretend and then we would uh, go you know, behind them and do anti-government stuff. 
As time went on, Fu's mother's fears about his future grew, so she devised a plan for him to escape. And one day in April of 1979, the 14-year-old boy boarded a boat. No one, including the captain, knew exactly where they'd end up. Fu remembers having just enough room to sit, but not to lie down. Our boat got uh, ransacked by the pirates 17 times. How many days were you at sea? I think maybe 20 days. I I saw people starting, you know, taking out their watches, their jewelry, and putting in that bucket. And I remember, you know, they took some of the young ladies from our boat over to their boat. They jump on and just drag drag them. One attacks after another, ransacking our boats, and, uh, and we got used to it. After almost three weeks at sea, Fu's boat landed in Malaysia, where they quickly destroyed the engine to keep police from forcing them back out onto the water. He spent the next nine months in a refugee camp before he was allowed to join cousins in Southern California, where he lives today. Fu describes the experience of his arrival in the U.S. in 1980. Um, You know, one of the person welcoming Vietnamese coming over he came out and he said, welcome to San Francisco. And this is the place where the land is so golden that you plant an antenna and will become a tree. That I remember that distinctively. And I had the first best food in my life for a long, long time. It was Kentucky Fried Chicken. It <laughs> tastes so good. I mean, it was the utmost happiest feeling that you actually in heaven as you got into America. From 1975 into the 1990s, hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese people came to the United States in a series of waves. First, those who evacuated at the fall of Saigon, and then the boat people like Phu, and later groups including former political prisoners and the children of American servicemen. As a result, we have a Vietnamese American population today of about 2 million people. Many, many Vietnamese came here. Do you think America is stronger for having opened its arms to this particular population? Sir, I can't answer that question without dwelling on what's happening presently, and I won't get into the politics of it, but I think that America has progressed from its inception from its immigrants. And uh, the South Vietnamese were the best and the brightest, as indicated by their willingness to do whatever it took to progress and do well in the U.S., make themselves upstanding American citizens. I think the same would be true, whoever they are, that the U.S. will be better for it if we do it intelligently. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. 